All right. Well, if you would, uh, is this on? If, if, if you would turn with me to the uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, but I want us to start in the very last uh, sentence of Luke chapter 14. So the very last sentence is Luke 14, and then into uh, Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. And uh, I want to just make a connection uh, between the end of Luke chapter 14 with the first couple of verses of Luke chapter 15. Uh, as you're turning there, the uh, passage of uh, Luke chapter 14, uh, where Jesus says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear, is following a, is it coming at the end of a, a section where Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship? And he's basically saying in three different occasions, he says, uh, If you um, don't hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, and sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. He repeats it again, anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And then later he says, in the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And then he concludes this section. He says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then it goes on in verses 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he says this. He says, he talks about discipleship. He talks about the cost of discipleship. And at the end of it, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then the text says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to what? To hear Jesus. And I think the author Luke, and uh, as he was writing this, he was writing this to really make a connection and, and really a, an incredibly shocking statement, a really surprising statement. Uh, because if you think about it, when Jesus talks about discipleship and he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, who would you expect then to gather around to hear Jesus? Who would you expect? Like if Jesus was doing a tour around the different churches and the different universities and maybe even different you know, um, secular institutions around America, who would you expect that would gather around to hear Jesus? Yeah, church people, right? Like pastors and theologians and missionaries and religious people and people like you. I mean, surely you guys would be the ones who would clamor around to hear Jesus. But when Luke wrote this, he, he doesn't say that it was the Pharisees who were clamoring around to hear Jesus. What does he say? He says it's the tax collectors and sinners. He says it was the people who go to the clubs and go to the bars and talking about the pimps and the prostitutes. I mean, these were the people who were gathering around to hear Jesus. And it was actually the religious people who, according to the scriptures, it says they were muttering, or the actual word is the same word in the Greek Old Testament that is translated in the Hebrew as, as grumbling in the Old Testament. Remember when the Israelites were, were coming out of, the, uh, out of Egypt, and remember they kept grumbling like over and over again against God? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about this, the spirit of grumbling. It was the religious people. It was the people within the context of the religious institutions. They were the ones who were grumbling against Jesus. And it was the ones outside of the church that were clamoring to hear Jesus Christ. And when I, when I hear that, when I read that, I think it's an, it's an intense, uh, very insightful, incisive warning on who? On us. It's not a warning on them. It's a warning on us. And what it's saying is, is make sure you're not one of those people who neglects to hear, to really hear. I mean, I'm not, I mean, you guys are hearing the Word of God, but are you really hearing the Word of God? 
Because some of us are so spoiled that we come in and we hear sermon after sermon, week in and week out. And we go to Bible study after Bible study. And we go into like, you know, we get, now you can podcast stuff. You can YouTube stuff. I mean, you can listen to sermons all day. You can read the Bible. You have different tools for the scriptures. You can go on, you know, on a concordance online and look up scriptures. And, and yet you could totally miss Jesus. I was, uh, recently I was in a, in a country in East Asia. And it's a communist country. And I was invited to preach at this underground church. And so I went to speak there, and they asked me to speak. It was interesting. I, I gave them a sermon passage, and they said, actually, could you speak directly on the cross, on the gospel? So I said, okay. So I switched it up, and I switched it onto a message about the gospel. And then um, they had a translator for me. It was a, it was a house church, so there's maybe about 35, 40 people in the church. And this, this girl who was translating was just really, she wasn't very good. So I would, I would preach, and then she would say, what, what, is that? What, what does that mean? And so I'd try to explain it to her a different way, and then she still didn't get it. So then people in the crowd would help her translate what I was saying, which made me wonder why they weren't translating for me, and she was. And if you've ever preached or given a testimony in a different culture, um, it's already nerve-wracking because... There are certain things that don't translate, right? Like, you know, like I can't, I can't talk about like, so then what happened was, like they don't know how to translate that, right? So, so what happens is you have to be very, very precise in the way you speak, very clear, very simple. You can't use any cultural, you know, stories or humor that they won't get. And so on top of the fact that I was already trying to think through what I was saying, when I realized that she didn't understand a lot of the words I was saying, I got, I got pretty anxious up there, pretty nervous. And I'm used to when I speak at new places, like, you know, you have to, like, bring it. You know what I'm saying? Like, in America, like, you know, wherever I go, there's, like, this pressure, like, because nobody knows you or something. You come and you got to bring it. And literally, people, before I preached uh, at, at new context, have come up to me. One, one, one girl came up to me one time. She was like, dude, don't suck. And I was like, thank you. That was so encouraging. I really need to hear that right before I'm about to preach. And so people have the gift of encouragement like that. And, and so I was there, and I started to sweat. Like, I seriously felt like, like Eminem. You know Eminem in 8 Mile? Y'all, see, younger people don't know. You got, older people know 8 Mile, right? You know? He, he was like, his palms were sweaty. Remember that? Knees weak, what? Arms were heavy. Vomit on his sweater already. What? Mom's chapaghetti, right? And so, <laughs> it's the Korean version. Anyway, so, I was like seriously starting to get a little sweaty. And, and then I, I was concluding the message with just a real simple description of what Jesus Christ went through at the cross. It's very simple. It's a, it's a description that many of you probably could have uh, told. And, and the craziest thing happened. Like one by one, people in the crowd began to just, just cry. And it was the same message that you and I have heard so many times. And I, I don't even know when the last time it has moved us to tears. And they were crying, and then I had an altar call. I didn't even know if it was legal for me to do an altar call, but I had an altar call. I asked them if they would want to raise their hands to receive Christ, and about seven or so people raised their hands to receive Christ. And then the house church leader was like, invite them up. So I was like, okay. So I invited them up, and they all came forward. One family, I'd invited them to this house church. The husband had come to know Jesus. The wife and the mom, I think it was the first time ever in church, their whole family came forward to receive Christ. And the mom was weeping. It was literally like the New Testament when like whole households would get saved. 
And then afterwards, through translators, the, the, these leaders of the church got up there with just tears coming down and saying they felt like they got saved all over again. And when I saw this happening, it was almost like God had brought me to preach the word to them, not for their sake only, but for my sake. Because I realized that they had these hearts that were so hungry and so humble and so responsive to the word of God. And, and, and it was an indictment on my own heart where I, I, I used to, I used to, I don't know if you're like this, but when I, when I first recommended my life to Jesus, I would read the Bible and it was just like insight would just come out. And now my heart is so callous sometimes and so hardened sometimes where I'll read the Bible and someone will ask me, hey, did your devotion say? I said, yeah, what was it on? And I'd be like, and I can't even remember. And so you hear it, but you don't really hear it. There's one more story. I remember I was talking to my mom and um, I was in seminary at the time. And again, my spirit, I felt really dry. Everything was so academic. And, and I called my mom. I said, Mom, what does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Because my mom is so full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, she really exudes Jesus. And I said, Mom, what does that look like? And I was expecting this like really spiritual answer. And she said to me, the first thing she said without even blinking an eye, she said, if you're filled with the Spirit, Dave, you will love the Word of God. Because the Holy Spirit wrote the word of God. Later, when I went home, we, we kind of continued the conversation. And I was, I was with her in the family room. And she said, she said, Dave, when you read the Bible, don't just read the Bible like this. She said, but read the Bible like this. Read the Bible like this. I think so many of us, we read the Bible, we do our devotions, we do it out of duty. And we don't hear, we don't really hear from God. And so I want to encourage you guys, even as, we, as I preach this message, that you would ask the Lord to incline your heart so that you would be one like those people in that country in East Asia who just at the hearing of God's word, you would be so moved to weep. This is such an honor to have this word. You don't know it because you've never known. You don't know the people who literally were burned at the stake so that this Bible could be in our hands. I was just talking to my dad this week, and he said to me, he said that he gave uh, an English Bible to this Ph.D. Uh, who's studying with him in America. And he doesn't speak English that well, but he gave him an English Bible. I said, Dad, why don't you give him a Korean Bible? He said, because the English Bible is the best translation in the world. That the Korean Bible, the, the clarity isn't as precise as the English translation. And I thought, wow, what a privilege. For us to be in a nation where you don't have to worry about coming to church. No one, no one came here secretly. When I went to that church to preach, we had to go like literally in the darkness and make sure that nobody was following us. And we were clustered in this little like apartment room upstairs. There was another time I was speaking in another house church where literally we were bam, bam, bam. We heard banging on the door and everybody was just scared because we were afraid that the police had come. And yet their hearts are so much more hungry for the gospel and the word there, and we are here. We have total access to the scriptures that God breathes into our lives. So let's just bow before Jesus. And would you just close your eyes? And it's this great psalm, Psalm one, you know, 119, I think, where, where David says, incline our hearts to your law. Incline my heart to your law. And I want you to pray that because I believe just like it's a supernatural gift to know and this love that surpasses knowledge to know that we're the beloved of God because of Christ. 
It's a supernatural gift to be able to have our hearts inclined to the word because our sinful flesh hates the word of God. So I want you to pray right now with faith. God, change this heart so that one word from your scriptures could radically change my soul tonight. Could change the trajectory of my uh, direction of my life. Let's cry out to God. Let's continue to pray. Let's just ask him. No, I, I want you to press into his presence. Some of your hearts are so hardened to God's word. You know it, and that's okay. Confess it. Come to the light with it. Tell him. God, I don't care about your word. I don't read your word every day. I don't, I don't meditate on your word. I don't apply your word. So, Lord, today, God, incline my heart to your word. Help me to love and delight in your word tonight. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can hear and truly hear your voice that brings life to dry and weary and worldly and wandering hearts. Father, for everyone who resonates with the thought, Lord, that we have not loved your word as we ought, we repent together. Father, we confess to you, Lord, that you have revealed yourself to us through your scriptures. God, I can imagine many of us understand what it's like to reveal ourselves to another. And to be rejected, it's so painful. Yet you have revealed yourself to us through your word, through your son Jesus. You have made yourself vulnerable. You have invited us into a relationship with you. Yet most moments of most days, we not only reject you, God, by not coming to your word, but we don't even feel bad about it. God, tonight, for those of us who recognize our sin, we come to you, Father, and we ask you for your help to quicken our hearts and our souls, our spirits, so that we might be inclined, Father, that our hearts might lean towards your holy scriptures. And that one sentence will change this church Forever, God. Lord, one sentence you spoke, the world was created. The universe was made from nothing. One sentence, Lord, and a whole sea was split. 
and your people were redeemed. One word, God, and a valley of dry bones became a vast army, Lord. One word, Lord, and a, a man named Lazarus raised from the dead four days in the tomb. One word, one gospel word, and every person who is in this room who is a son or a daughter of Christ became a follower of Jesus. One word in good soil will produce 30, 60, 100 times will be multiplied. God, one word. So I pray, Father, that you would make the soil of these people's hearts good tonight. Cultivate it. Break the hardness of it with your word. And then plant a seed of grace in their hearts that would bloom into a massive tree that many would find life in. Because, God, the time is short. Father, the time is short. This church, Lord, has, has seen that message many times, God, this past few years. A reminder that time is short. That our lives are not promised, God. And not only that, but with all the things happening in this world, Father, who knows when you'll return, God. And how we could stand before you, knowing that we are saved in Christ. Knowing that we're headed to eternity forever by grace alone and to stand before you with your eyes filled with tears pleading with us on that final judgment day why did you not tell more people about jesus was i not value was i not valuable enough was i not worthy enough was i not gracious enough did i not bless you enough god with one sentence tonight unleash this church, with the grace of Jesus Christ upon Orlando, upon the nations, O oh God. Because you did not create them, Father, for just comfort, O oh God. You didn't create them just to be wealthy, O oh God. You created them to proclaim Christ with their life, with their mouth. And to bring glory to the name of Jesus. Draw them to yourself, God. By grace, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law grumbled. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I want you to imagine, and we're going to be going for the next uh, four messages. So tonight, tomorrow night, and then into the retreat. Uh, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, which is one of the most uh, famous uh, chapters and parables in all of Scripture. And, and we're going to gaze upon the lavishness of the, the grace of the Father, the grace of Jesus Christ. But I want us to imagine, I want you to imagine for the next four messages that, that you're in this crowd. You can choose who you want to be. You can be the tax collector. You can be the sinner. You can be the Pharisee. You can be just a disciple, whoever you want to be. And I want you to imagine going back 2,000 years of first century Palestine. And here's Jesus, this religious leader who, who no religious leader ever kicked it 
with sinners and tax collectors ever. Uh, Tax collectors were the people who would uh, be hired by the Roman government to collect taxes from their own people. Tax collectors could exercise a a kind of a a, a bonus for themselves above what the Roman Empire required for their taxes. I don't know about you, but if somebody came to my door with a bunch of bodyguards around him and demanded a tax, knowing that the Roman government charged a 25% tax, let's say, and they were charging me 50%, and knowing that that extra 25% of my money is going to go straight to these people because they feel like it. Are you happy with that? See, some of you guys who are in school don't understand what it's talking about, but you will one day. But those of you guys who have jobs, how many of you guys love it when your taxes go to help a government who is just going to spend it on themselves? Anyone happy about that? I mean, anyone happy with the fact that you're, you're working your booty off and, and you're like working like 60 hours a week and you're raising your kids and you can barely get by while all these government politicians, this is hypothetical, of course, these government politicians in D.C., I mean, I I was really happy when I saw they did a survey nationally of all the different areas of America who were asking, are you happy with the state of our economy? And only one area in the whole nation was positive. Every other area was deeply negative. Guess which area was positive about the economy? The D.C., Maryland area. And when I read that, I was so happy. So happy that my taxes are making that one area of America happy while everyone else in America is really, really upset about the economy. Were you happy about that? No, you're not happy about that. And if you met them, would you be happy? No, you wouldn't be happy about that. And these guys would come and literally exercise a tax that was out of, you know, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't appropriate. It was, it was huge. And they were taking it. They were, they were ballers because of the taxes that they were putting on people. Nobody liked tax collectors. Nobody. Sinners were people who basically by their vocation did that which was sinful. Or they were so messed up, they made so many mistakes that in a religious society they were completely ostracized. They were like the scarlet letter was on them. There were people who, like like a prostitute, every time she makes money, every time she does her job, she's doing something that's immoral in the sight of God. These were the lowest in the moral ladder. These were the people in a Jewish society that, that, that revered their holy God. They were the kinds of people who everybody tried to literally avoid. They didn't want to be touched by these people, to be corrupted by them. Now, I don't want you to just hear that. I want you to step into the shoes of these people. I want you to step into the shoes of people because people today are just like that. Maybe, in fact, some of you in this room are like this. Where you've made some mistakes that are so messed up according to the church, that you're so scared that anyone in church would find out because you know you will be judged and gossiped about. And if you're in the Asian community, it's like you're like labeled forever, aren't you? That's why some of us are so afraid of making mistakes. I have people come to me who've done all kinds of things, just weeping because they're so, so burdened by shame and guilt, and they don't want to tell anyone in their church. So they tell a guest speaker, because they just want to get that burden off of them. There are people in your high schools and junior high who have been labeled. I remember as a kid in high school, junior high, people have been labeled as, as the, the ones who are promiscuous. Man, they, they had that label forever. They had no chance of redemption. You just see the insecurity building up in their lives. These are the people 
who weren't just bad people. They weren't just messed up people. They were human beings who had been just completely ostracized by society and never once had a religious leader, never once had a holy person looked upon them with love and kindness and never once. No wonder why they were clamoring to hear Jesus because they had never met anyone like him who was at once completely holy and pure and completely gracious and kind and compassionate. This man welcomed sinners. These, these Pharisees were just, they were just stunned and they were so angry at him. Look at you. Not only do you welcome these sinners, but you eat with them. How could you? You cannot be a holy person in our society. What to me is so profound about this sentence, and this sentence perhaps more than any other sentence in the, in the scriptures, has shaped my philosophy of ministry and really my worldview of how to relate to people in the church and outside the church, is that they ended up saying one of the most profound sentences of the gospel in all of scripture. They said it as an insult on Jesus, but it turns into the most beautiful gospel sentence that I believe if you were to believe this sentence, you would be changed forever. And if your church believed this sentence, your church would be so radically different that people wouldn't know what to do with it. I've, I've been gathering some people from my church plant, and I've told some of these leaders, I said, hey, listen, if you join this church plant, if you're on staff at this church plant, I said, you better die to your reputation because people are going to judge you like crazy. Because when we go out into the hard places, we go to the dark place and we hang out with some of the worst kinds of people and we are praying for them and we're loving these sinful people. Hey, guess what? In Chicago, knowing the moralistic culture of our society and of our church society, guess what? People are going to judge and label you as sinful too by association. They're going to tell you that leaders and pastors are not supposed to hang out with those kinds of people. So I said, if you want to join our plant, better die to your, say goodbye to your reputation. If you love your reputation too much, you probably don't want to go here. Because Jesus lost his reputation. Because he welcomed sinners. And if your church never lost its reputation, if your church has never been judged by other churches for being too gracious, for loving messed up people too much, then are you really living out this gospel? Because Jesus was judged like crazy. Why aren't you? So what I want to do in the next few moments is I want to just break down this sentence and show you why you need to believe that Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them. And why you need to be a church that welcomes sinners and eats with them. Number one, it says this, this man, this man. Who is this man? Who is this man? Because who it is that welcomes you is so important for you to understand. If I walk down the streets of Chicago and a homeless person says, hey, I love you, my heart isn't, it's not jumping with joy. I, I'm not, I don't have an extra skip in my step. So I don't, I don't value that person. I don't know that person. But if somebody that I value and look up to does something significant for me, then all of a sudden I'm changed. When I was growing up as a kid, this is back in the day when some of you guys probably don't even know who this guy is, but he was the most, probably the most famous basketball player at the time. His name is Magic Johnson. He was what was good about the NBA, all right? He was what was good about the Lakers, all right? 
And his name was Magic Johnson. He was six foot nine. He was a point guard. And he just brought so much joy and excitement and teamwork to the, to the game. But one day, my friend said, hey, Dave, he's coming to Chicago. I said, oh, my goodness. I, I, I love Magic Johnson. So I, he's my favorite player of all time. So we drove up to the city like 45 minutes away, and we waited in line. He had these, these shoes called the Magic Shoes. They were like one of the worst shoes of all time. And um, you had to buy them to get them signed by him. But I was like, of course I'll buy them. So I bought these shoes. I was waiting in line. It was a long line. And this white um, lady who's a, a, a news reporter, she comes up to us. And I think she came up to us because we're the only Asians in the line. And she wanted some diversity for her article. So she comes to us, up to us and she says, are you a Magic Johnson fan? This was my response without even like blinking. She said, are you? A, I said, am I? I was offended. I said, am I a Magic Johnson fan? I said, Irvin Magic Johnson, born August 14th, 1959 in East Lansing, Michigan. Who used to shovel the snow in the wintertime so he could play, uh, play basketball outside in the frozen tundra of Michigan? Yes, I'm a Magic Johnson fan. And she said, you are going to be in my article. And so I got into her newspaper article, and, and I'd written Magic a love note the night before, I think. And <laughs> so I was eagerly waiting. There was all these like, kids in the line, but I was just so excited. And we finally got to the front line after a really long wait. He was just a few feet away from me, and I was seriously giddy with delight. I mean, all my life, I modeled my whole game after this man, okay? I, I, I wasn't quite as good, but I was close. And I modeled my whole game after this guy. I was a point guard in high school. I, loved, I used to play all the time as a little kid. It was Magic Johnson against Larry Bird all the time. Magic, just, just me, and I was Magic and Larry, okay? I was both, <laughs> all right? But Magic would always win. He'd always win, right? Last second shot, three, two, one. If I missed it, I would be like, oh, there's still a second left, and then bam, I shoot again. If I miss it, oh, there's still a second line. I keep shooting until I won. Anyway, I finally get to the front of the line, and I give him my love note. And then I say to him, I say, hey, Magic, I'm a pastor. I just want you to know um, that, you know, when I think about you, I'm going to be praying for you. He put his hand on my shoulder. Magic Johnson, touch me right here. (laughs) And he said to me, he looked in my eyes with love, okay, with love. And he said to me, I swear, he looked me right in the eye and said, Dave. You're doing a good work. Magic Johnson affirmed my call to ministry. (laughs) And I was seriously like, like his hand was. And I was literally, I was with my, my, my buddy and I was like, so I was, I was changed. I was jumping up and down. I was like, oh my gosh, Magic Johnson touched me. And there was only one reason why I was changed forever. It was because of who it was who touched me and who affirmed my call to ministry. See, if a random stranger had done that, I would have been like, okay, I appreciate that. Who are you? Okay? But when Magic Johnson did it, it totally changed the significance of that action. The reason I tell you that is because most of you are not that impressed with the fact that God loves you and he welcomes you because you have no idea who Jesus is. You have no idea. If you saw Jesus right now, you would fall like a dead person in the light of his glory. Jesus is literally the holiest one to ever walk the same ground that you and I walk. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the holiest person that you know. Think about it. Who's the holiest person you know? Who's the godliest person that you know? Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your pastor. Whoever it is, who is it? Think about it. 
And when you think about that person, as I think about the person in my life, who you know, it's my mom. When I think about my mom, the gap between my mom and myself is huge. When I think about how godly my mom is and then how godly I am, like, I'm not even close to where she is. So I want you to think about that holy person. Do you feel the same way? Do you feel like that person is far godlier than you are? Probably. Well, guess what? Whoever you think is the godliest person that you know, compared to this man, Jesus, that person that you think is so godly, in light of the holiness of Jesus, is so vile and wicked that that person justly and fairly deserves to go and burn in hell for all of eternity next to Jesus' holiness. That's holy, isn't it? I mean, my mom's holy, but next to her, I don't deserve to go to hell. But next to Jesus, my mom should go to hell forever, and it would be fair. That's holy. Jesus is so holy that when the angels see him in his glorified state, I don't know about you, but angels are holy. You know what I mean? Like if you saw an angel, I'd be freaking out. All right? Especially if I saw like an Asian angel because I never heard of one of those. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like you heard of like Gabriel and Michael, whatever you heard of Kuho, never. (laughs) That'd be a crazy angel. A Korean angel, that'd that'd be a trip. Angels are holy. Angels, when angels show up in the Bible, human beings are like, because they're holy. But, but angels, when they see Jesus, they literally cover their faces, they cover their bodies, they cover their feet. He's so holy. And they cry out repeatedly, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in the next second, they say it again, holy, and over and over and over and over again, all throughout eternity, they cry out, holy, holy, holy. But this man, Jesus, he is the holiest one, perfect in all his ways. Never for a nanosecond did he think of anything that was apart from the pure and perfect will of his father. He is holy. This man welcomed. Most times when you're around people you perceive as holy, you don't feel like you want to be yourself. You never notice that? When you're around holy people, like when you, if you were to kick it with like Mother Teresa or like Billy Graham, I mean, you're not going to be the same way you are with your homies or with your sisters. You know what I'm saying? Like I remember when I played ball, I played ball a lot and, and I'm not holy, Okay. My only holiness is seriously from Jesus, all right? There's nothing holy about me. But people think I'm holy because I'm a pastor. So we'd be playing ball, and then people, you know, guys, like, if, you know, people say, ladies, if you want to know a guy's character, watch them on the basketball court. It's kind of true. And, and guys would just start cursing. And as soon as they curse and they realize I'm on the court, they'll always go, oh, sorry, pastor. They would curse all they want with their friends, but as soon as I'm there, they're like, oh, sorry. Because in perceived holiness, they hide their sins. That's the normal way. The category we think about holiness is if someone's holy, we try to hide our sins. The crazy thing about Jesus is he's the holiest one to ever. I mean, so holy that everyone should go to hell next to him. And it's not even a question. And yet the same one who is the holiest one was for some reason a magnet for the worst kinds of people in society. 
That's why he's so profound. That's why if you have a church, there are churches that like to be holy and there are churches that like to be gracious. But, but neither is Jesus. Jesus is both. And, and, and Satan would do anything he can to get churches to be one or the other. And that's what every church I go to, it seems like they're one or the other. Why can't they be both? Why can't you pursue hard after the word of God and hard after his glory and hard after obedience and hard after conforming your life to Christ-like character and go hard after messed up people? Go hard after sinners. Because you know that you, you know your own sin. You know you're not better than anybody else in this world. Why can't we be like Jesus? He is the holiest one. He is the sovereign one. He is the one who created the heavens and the earth. He created one. He said one word and out of nothing, hundreds of billions of galaxies were created. And I wish I could just go through all the scriptures or all the different just ways that God is just, he's, Jesus was just he's so, so awesome. He literally, I was thinking about this the other, he, he, he could have made thousands of Magic Johnsons. Like, I was so in awe of Magic Johnson. Jesus could have created a thousand Magic Johnson, better Magic Johnson. In fact, he tried. His name was LeBron, but it didn't work. <laughs> and, and, and Jesus could do whatever he wants, and, and yet we don't, we stand, I, I've met Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan, all these different people, and I stood in awe of them. They didn't even welcome me. They didn't say, hey, let's be best friends. They never said that. In fact, my story about Magic Johnson looking at me with love is probably a little exaggerated. And yet Jesus longs to be intimate with you. Why are you not in awe? You know what I'm saying? I mean, why are you not giving every ounce of your life to this man, Jesus? Why are you not seriously just falling on your feet and just worshiping him and praying and crying out to him and thanking him, thanking? Love me. You called me. You chose me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You remember that story of the ten lepers and they all get healed and only one came back to say thank you. And you look at them, you're like, how could the other nine? They just got healed from leprosy. They got healed not just from a physical ailment, but from societal um, um, rejection. And only one came back to say, thank you. And then I think about you guys. How about you? How many of you guys have come back to say thank you to Jesus today? How many of you guys came back to him just once today and said thank you? I mean, is he not worthy? I mean, has he not healed us of something far greater than leprosy? Condemnation? The wrath of God? Of hell? Just once today, to fall on your knees and say thank you. This man welcomes sinners. The word welcome, in the original language in Greek, there's different words that can be translated to the English as welcome or receive. The basic word is the word dekamai. It means to receive or to welcome. The Pharisees could have said, this man decamized sinners and eats with them. And then all of a sudden, everyone would have been like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe he decamized them. The word decamai has the connotation of, you know, if you're at school and you invite your friend to sit by you at the cafeteria, 
or you're at your coworkers and you want to have a business lunch and you welcome them into your presence. That's the sense of decamai. It's not intimate. It's not personal. It's just, hey, I want to welcome you in. The Pharisees don't just say, you decamai sinners. That would have been bad enough because people don't decamai sinners. But they go a little bit further. They say, you pros decamai sinners. That word has a far more intimate tone. What he's saying there is, you don't just welcome sinners, but you intimately welcome. That has the connotation of if you haven't seen like your best friend in like three years. And you're like best friends for like 15, 20, 30 years. And you haven't seen them in three years. And they come off that flight. And you're at the airport ready to pick them up. You haven't seen them in three years. And you just, and you just, you know what I'm saying? Like girls, you just, you just catch up for like four, five, six hours about everything. And you, all your secrets just unload because you don't just welcome them physically into your presence, but you open up your heart and you welcome them all the way into your heart. That's prostecomai. The Pharisees got it right. Jesus, the problem with you is not that you just decamai sinners. That's bad enough, but you intimately welcome messed up people. That's how jacked up you are, Jesus. Aren't you so glad he's messed up like that? Because I'm that sinner. And you're that sinner. And not just in the past before we came to Christ, but aren't some of us just as sinful today after we've tasted the grace of God? He doesn't just decamai you. He prostecamize you. I mean, he welcomes you intimately. I mean, he's like, I want to be your best friend. Like, I want to be intimate. I want to know everything. And I want you to know everything about me. Come to the secret places with me. That's your father. That's Jesus. I was on this flight to speak in L.A. And I was sitting next to this guy. And I started to strike up a conversation with him because I wanted to kind of share the gospel with him. And so I started to talk to him about some stuff. And then I started to share the gospel with him. He didn't know I was preaching on the same passage. And he said to me, he said, Dave, um, he's from, he was a Caribbean guy. And he said he was from this tribe called the Kalanago tribe. And he said the Kalanago tribe were part of this bigger subset of people called the Carib people, which is where they get the name Caribbean. He said in our tribal history, we have a certain story, a certain value where if you ever reject the Kalanago tribe, if you ever leave our tribe, anytime you return to our tribe, no matter what you've done, we will welcome you back. And when I heard that, I was so blown away that this presumably non-Christian tribe was reflecting a greater example of the grace of Jesus than most churches. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that tribe? Where you have the security of knowing no matter how far you mess up, you can always come home. If you are in Christ, by the grace of God, He has purchased every single sin and all your consequences of those sins, all the punishment for that at the cross. And that means no matter what you've struggled with this past week or this past month or this past year, guess what, church? You can come home. Jesus won't just decamai you, but a prostecamai you.
Matter of fact, the rest of the Luke 15 story is just a retelling of this sentence. It's just Jesus saying, oh, Pharisees, you got it right. You got it so right. I love to welcome sinners. Let me tell you how much. Let me tell you how much. This, this idea of welcome is all throughout the gospel of Luke. It's this idea of hospitality. And Jesus is the most hospitable person. He welcomes everybody who would come to him. And I was thinking about this as an application for your church, that you would begin to pray that your church would be a prosdecamite church. You wouldn't be satisfied with being a decamite church, but you would be a prosdecamite church. And the reason why is because when you welcome people, when you welcome newcomers, when you welcome outsiders, when you welcome sinners, when you welcome people who are jacked up, guess what happens? You then begin to reflect the gospel of Jesus more accurately to your culture. There's a lot of you who would say, well, Dave, I'm not, I'm not very extroverted. I'm really shy. And, and, and I've, I've thought about this, and I really believe this. It's not about introversion or extroversion or shyness or friendliness. It's about the gospel. It's a theological issue. It's about the glory of God. Shy people can welcome people. too. Introverted people can be outgoing and welcome people. too. You can do it. Because it's not about your personality. It's about the gospel. It's about the fact that every single time someone comes in and they don't know anyone. Have you ever done that? Some of you have been in Orlando all your life. Maybe you've been to this church. You don't know. It's like, go to another church one day. Go to a church the same size as your church. Go to a church that's different ethnicity than your, yourself. And go out and watch if nobody welcomes you. Tell me how you feel on that day. And you're a Christian. Now tell me what it feels like for somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus. And for one shot. They come into your church and they say, I need something spiritual. They give you one shot. And they come to your church and not one person walks away. Do they think to themselves, oh, it's not about the gospel. It's just about this church. No, they think it's the gospel now. I remember when I was in college, God radically changed my life in college. And I remember I was, um, I was just, just an evangelist. I love to share the gospel with people. And I remember I had a friend of mine who went to Northwestern University. He's my best friend from high school. And he had another friend. And she was this really sweet girl, really kind. And we became friends. And after a few weeks, I decided I want to call her up and I'm going to share Christ with her. So I called her up and I be, it's the nicest girl. I call her up and I begin to share Christ with her. And when I'm done sharing Christ, the strangest thing happens. She starts yelling at me. She starts getting angry at me. She starts cursing at me, swearing at me, swearing at the church, swearing at God, dropping the F-bomb everywhere. And I'm sitting there. And my spirit is literally disturbed. I'm like, why is she so angry? So after she gives off her tirade, there's this really awkward silence. I mean, like, how do you like, you know, oh, it's, thanks for sharing. How's your day? And <laughs> It's really awkward. So I'm praying, and there's this awkward silence. And then after a while, I just asked her this one question. I said, if you don't believe in God, then why are you so angry at him? And then that silence became more awkward. It was, like, really awkward after that. And so there's this long silence. And I'm just sitting there like, what, is she going to hang up on me? What's she going to say? And after this really long silence, in the quietest voice, she goes, And that's basically how we ended that conversation. For the next year, I tried to restore that friendship. And after about a year, I felt like I restored the friendship enough because I wanted to ask her one question. So I asked her this question. I said, hey, did you ever go to church when you were younger? She said, actually, I did. I said, did you ever have any negative or painful experiences at the church? She said, I did. 
I said, what happened? He said, when I was in junior high, I went to my church and the elder sons and his friends would just make fun of me. They would make fun of me a lot and I would start to cry and I would go hide. And I don't remember how many times it happened, but eventually she she decided to herself, I'm never going to go to a church again. And literally a seed of, of anger began to take root in her heart towards the church. And then it grew into this full-fledged tree where it wasn't now, she wasn't just angry at the church. Guess what? She was angry at who? God. God had never done anything to her. It was people in the church who had done that to her. How sad would it be on that final day if she doesn't go to heaven because of us? So please don't tell me that this is not a matter of the gospel or the glory of God. I mean, one of the things that I really see in your church is so much potential is that you guys could be some of the most friendly, hospitable, kind people. But now I'm challenging you to go outward with that. Don't be weird about it. If somebody walks in who's new, don't have 45 people, how are you? You know, don't do that. (laughs) But just in a normal, appropriate way, invite them out. Say, hey, if you're not doing anything for lunch, no pressure, but if you want to join us, we'd love to have you. Treat them out to a lunch. I say, hey, I'd love for you to meet. Oh, what do you do? Oh, you're a doctor. Hey, we have another friend here who's a doctor. Oh, you're new to town. Hey, if you need anything, just give me a call. No pressure. And don't do it just because you want to be a nice person. Do it because the glory of the gospel is at stake. Because a soul that could head into eternity, dependent upon the way that you reflect Jesus to that person, is at stake. Do it because you want to participate with the character of Jesus Christ, who is the most welcoming and hospitable being in the universe. Do it because you want your church to be known throughout Orlando as a prosdecamite church. You can do that, can't you? By the grace of God, because you have been welcomed when you didn't deserve hospitality. Now go on and welcome others who don't deserve it. This man welcomes prosdecamites sinners. That word sinners at the end of that sentence is what, in my estimation, distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. Every other religion says this God, this religion, this way, this philosophy welcomes the devoted, welcomes the obedient, welcomes the submissive, welcomes the religious, welcomes the righteous, welcomes the good. Only Christianity says this holy man welcomes messed up, sinful people. It is this word at the end of that sentence that is so radically different from every other major world religion. There is no religion that at the center of it is grace. This is Christianity. This man welcomes sinners and your church should be shaped by this sentence. It presupposes that we're sick. It presupposes that we don't love Jesus very much on our own. It presupposes that apart from his grace, we're going to mess up. So stop coming to church and acting like you have it all together because you don't. And by you acting like you have it all together, you are hindering sick people from receiving grace. People think it's about the pulpit and preaching grace, but I really believe it's about a culture in the church that proclaims the grace of Jesus. It says that if my righteousness is in Christ and not my performance, then why am I so afraid of being judged in the church for my performance? 
If it's all in Christ, then are all my sins covered? Yes. Then why is the church, the people who are trying to uncover my sins again? They say, you're messed up. I'd rather be in a church that says, hey, I'm messed up and you're messed up. What are you messed up about? Oh, no way. Me too. Hey, let's pray for each other because Jesus loves to welcome people. The greatest healing I've seen in the church is when people who are jacked up somehow find a space to be able to be broken and receive the grace of Jesus. And then out of that grace to hear those loving and merciful words from Jesus, he said in John 8, now go and leave your life you've received this grace that grace leads to holiness holiness does not happen apart from mercy the greatest picture of this gospel in the community came when i was in college i was um i think i was a sophomore in college 1995 the spring i was at a christian college called wheaton and every week we had this um missions praise night where we would bring in, you know, missionaries and famous speakers like John Piper and all these different people would come out. And we'd have about 600 people would worship and listen to the word. And I had gone maybe one time that whole year. It was like March or so. And I'd gone only one time that year. But for what, whatever reason, I felt compelled to go this night. And about 15 of us from our floor ended up going. There were about 40 guys on our floor, but about 10, 15 of us went at the same time. And I remember I kept telling my friends, I said, Hey, guys, revival's going to break out. They're like, shut up. I was like, revival's going to break out. They're like, shut up. Revival's going to break out. It was really weird. Like, I, know, I was joking. Right? I was totally joking. I have this gift of joking prophecy. If I'm joking about it, it comes true. All right? So I started joking. I'm going to make a million dollars. I'm going to make a million. It just it hasn't happened. Anyway, so, so I, 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 was, um, I was walking to this, uh, this, this worship night. And these two guys from Texas, a guy and a girl from Texas came up, and they shared about a revival that broke out in their small school. And they're telling us about all these people who were confessing sins in front of their whole school. It's crazy. We're all riveted by these stories. Around 9 p.m., maybe a little before 9, they opened up the microphones on both sides. It was packed, and there were about 700 people there that night. And they said, if anyone has any they want to share in front of the school, come forward. So a few people came up to line up, and one guy shared about his struggles with lust and pride. And then this other guy, as I recall, he began to share, and he began to weep, and he began to share his struggles with masturbation. Now, this is back in the day in 95 when no one talked about masturbation. No one talked about a lot of these deep issues because we were at a conservative college. No one talked about the fact that people were struggling with these sins. This guy begins to weep, and it was like, bam, the Holy Spirit broke. And from 9 p.m. until 6 a.m., there were lines of people one by one confessing some of the craziest sins in front of, and people started to come from other places to see what God was doing. Every time someone would confess, about 15, 20 people would, in a very orderly way would just come over them and just put their hands on them and just pray love and mercy and forgiveness over them. And this literally happened from 9 p.m. until 6 a.m. I was so tired at 4.30 a.m., so I walked home at 4.30. As I was walking to my floor, my dorm, one of the guys on my floor who wasn't at the um, revival is walking towards that chapel. So I was like, Eric, what are you doing? He goes, God woke me up and told me to go to Pierce Chapel. I said, do you know what's going on? He's like, no. I said, promise me you will go there. Don't return. Just go there. God woke him up and said to go to Pierce Chapel. It was crazy. And he had no idea why. He was just obeying the spirit. The next night, we reconvene at 9.30 p.m. We're still going to school. At 9.30 p.m., again, from 9.30 p.m. till about 3.30 a.m., people confess sins. 
Tuesday night, we had to move to a local church because there were too many people in that chapel, and so we had to go into a bigger building, 9.30 a.m. to 3.30 a.m. Wednesday, 9.30 a.m. to 3.30 a.m. By the time the week was done on Thursday night, we had a time of testimony and worship. And I remember that week, I mean, literally, I was, I was you know, sitting in the crowd, and people would come, my friends, leaders in the, in the ministry, missionary kids, pastors, kids. I mean, Wheaton is full of people, like famous authors and, and, and musicians. Like, they're kids. Like, you, you hear their name, you're like, wait, are you Ravi Zacharias' daughter? Yes, I am. It's like crazy. And, and all these different people who had, he came from these unbelievable godly backgrounds coming up and confessing they're losing their virginity. Pornography, drugs, alcohol. I mean, this is a Wheaton College. This is like the Christian college where Billy Graham and Jim Elliott went. People started confessing their struggles with homosexuality. And all kinds of sins just began to just unleash. And not once did I sense there was judgment. It was just all these people. I remember the first guy who confessed his struggle with homosexuality, and like 40, 50 people just coming and just, just putting their hands on him and just praying for healing, and grace forgiveness and the more they saw this gospel the more other people who were so scared began to come forward the sins got deeper and that's what happens when the gospel begins to take root in a community because every one of you has sins and every one of you have insecurities and every one of you needs healing most of you will pass it by because you're so concerned what people will think. Maybe we'll start with your house churches. Maybe we'll start with one other person. Who are the people who are going to say, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of religion. I'm so tired of pretending I believe this gospel and not walking in light of it. I'm so tired of not walking in the righteousness of Jesus rather than in my own performance. And remember the last night, it was Thursday night. And the confessions ended, and we had a time of testimony. And then at the end, we just closed with worship. And I remember, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, people would always say, when we get to heaven, we're going to worship God forever. And, like, everyone at church would get so excited except for me. Because I'd be like, really? You guys sing songs forever? I, mean, I don't know. I mean, some of you guys like to sing songs forever, you know what I mean? But me, I'm like, after 30 minutes or so, I'm like, I'm good. I'm good. You know what I'm saying? And am I the only sinner like that? Like, I mean, really, like, it's just like, okay, maybe an hour if they're really good, all right? If I'm in a good mood, maybe an hour and a half, okay? But, I mean, really, forever? Like, is anyone out there like, I want to do 16 hours a day forever? You know, like, there's not many of you, okay? I mean, how many Hillsong songs can we sing, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, we're up in heaven, we're like, Darlene, some new songs. We've been singing these for the last 85 years, come on, you know? And so, I mean, literally, like, People would say that to me, and, and I would just, not, I wouldn't, it really, the only part of heaven that I liked was the food part, you know what I mean? Like, that's the only part that, like, really, I'll, I'll go there, okay, food, all right, sweet. So I remember, I remember that night, we had an altar call for anyone who was called to full-time ministry, and people don't know this about Wheaton, because Moody, like, Moody and schools like that, they're Bible schools, but Wheaton is a liberal arts school, so most people don't go into ministry. But what's interesting is, revival broke out at Wheaton College five times in the, in the 1900s, 1936, 1943, 1950, and there's a 20-year gap to 1970, and then a 25-year gap to 1995 when I was there. It's the only five times the revival broke out, and when I looked at our, we have a wall of missionaries, of who was sent out as missionaries each year. And it's interesting because after the 36, 43, 50, and 70 revivals, the amount of missionaries would quadruple. Which again tells me that if you want to unleash a generation for missions, it's not by telling them to go to missions, but it's by showing them the grace of Jesus Christ. 
when people see God and when people see the cross, guess what happens? People go out to the nations. Jim Elliott was a product of those revivals. Billy Graham was a product of those revivals. I mean, it's unbelievable when you see the gospel manifest in a community of sinners, it literally unleashes within you a passion to share that with the whole world. So here we were, 200 of us went forward for a call to full-time ministry. 200 people, unheard of at Weedon. Matter of fact, to this day, I'm shocked at how many people in my class alone are on the mission field or in full-time pastoral ministry. It's unbelievable how many people from Weedon. And that night, we worshiped Jesus for about three hours. And all I can tell you is it felt literally like it was like a minute. It, it was the weirdest thing. I, like, I, I don't know if I've ever worshipped that long, but it felt like that because we were so lost in the gospel. We were so lost in the presence of the king. We were so lost in the presence because we had seen literally captives set free. We had seen people liberated. I mean, the, the guy who shared his story with homosexuality was heaving just Heaving with tears. Because he was so afraid. Guess what he received that day? Forgiveness. Mercy. Grace. From the Lord, yes, but manifest through us. As we hugged him. As we told him that he was right. Guys, Satan doesn't want that for your church. Jesus does. He wants you to receive the welcome of Jesus today. That's my whole presupposition of ministry. You get it first. Don't point at other people. You need this. You need the gospel, don't you? I need the gospel. When DL said that vision statement, I was like, for, for my life, I said, no, 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 there's one part of it that's missing. My vision statement for my life is that I would come to know that I'm the beloved of God because of Christ alone, so that I could help other people come to know that they're the beloved of God because of your vision for yourself, however you say it, should be that you get the gospel into your own heart. You recognize your sin. You receive the healing, forgiveness, and mercy of Jesus Christ so that you could be a beacon, a vessel of grace to your church and to flow out into the nation. You do that, church. When you're on your deathbed looking back at your life, you have no regrets. You have no regrets. This man welcomes sinners, meets with so tonight I'm pleading with you, let Jesus welcome you tonight afresh. Amen. Let's pray. Let's come before Jesus. Some of you need to just come as you are. Some of you have been hiding. Some of you have worn a mask or a facade of righteousness that is not true. Some of you have chosen your own performance rather than the Christ's performance. And you have not exalted the cross by doing so. Some of you need to let Jesus eat with you and welcome you and embrace you as you are dirty and stained and broken and to whisper to you that you are forgiven 
to whisper to you that his righteousness is now credited to you. To whisper to you that you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You wear his robe and it is pure white. It is beautiful. Some of you need to come to him and to confess and to bring to light your sin. Some of you are struggling with pornography. Some of you are in unhealthy relationships with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Some of you husbands need to repent of not serving and loving your wife with gospel love. Some of you wives need to repent of not respecting and honoring your husband and praying for him. He would be a man of God. Some parents need to repent of exasperating their children. Some kids need to repent of not obeying and honoring your parents. Some of you need to repent of not giving Jesus your all. The beauty of all this repentance is a promise that he will run to you and welcome you. That he longs to prostecamai you tonight. I don't want you to think about anyone else right now. We'll do that later. I want you to think about how much someone else needs to hear this message. You need this message. I need this message. And if you don't think that you need this message, then you probably more than anyone else need this message. You don't have to wait for the music to start. You could just pray now. I'm asking you to pray from your heart tonight. I'm asking you to be vulnerable with Jesus tonight. I'm asking you to lay down your mask tonight because some of you are so tired. And you have no idea because you're so used to this falsehood. And tonight, lay it down and come to the cross and find him running to you. Come to him with your tears. Come to him with your pain. Come to him with your past. Come to him with your mistakes. Come to him with your poor choices. Come to him with your dysfunctions. Come to him with your brokenness. Come to him with your weakness. Come to him with your insecurities and your deception. Come to him as you are now. And let his grace embrace you. Jesus longs to welcome and receive sinners. He wants to prostate my you, church. Don't be self-righteous any longer. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your judgmental, critical spirit. Repent of your propensity to gossip about people in this church. Repent of your superiority to others. When you yourself know that you're desperately in need of a Savior. Repent of your hard heart. Jesus is here. Let him welcome you tonight. Come to him. Come all the way to Jesus tonight. Don't tell him you're going to do better. Don't tell him you're going to make commitments. Just come as you are and let him embrace you right now.
Father, Lord God. Father, in turn, Lord God. In turn, Lord God. In turn, Lord God. Come to one. Father, Lord God. Come to one. Father, Lord God. Father. 